the funny thing about small business is that it's a pretty big community. This is my conversation with Pat Miller. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repton. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Pat Miller. Pat is the founder of the Idea Collective, a small business incubator. He's also host of the podcast, the Pat Miller Show podcast. I'm so excited to have him on today. I have a project I'm working on. I have several projects and I need help. I also don't want to bore people with only my projects. I want to hear about some of the adventures that, that Pat has and what got him to this point. So Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Hirsch. Great to talk with you today. Thanks. I th- I think that for the Truth Taste Funny audience, this is also a special kind of episode because we do a lot of personal stories, a lot of some stories that are uplifting or stories that where people share challenges. But day to day, a lot of what we're doing is trying to survive and grow our businesses and more and more... I just find myself talking to and aligning with just in in day-to-day life people who are wanting to take the control into their own hands and say, "Look, I've I've worked for the man for, you know, 20 years or I tried working in the system. I tried working in 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 a big corporation and I just felt it wasn't giving me what I wanted and it wasn't taking what I had to offer and but I don't know how to run my own business." I don't know. I have a great idea, and I'm sure you hear this a lot. I have a great idea. I can take it up to here, and then I don't know what to do. So, what would you? What do you do with that when you when you hear that? What's your reaction? The best businesses are someone that's following their passion and performing what they love to do. Those are the best businesses to start. The problem is, if you like to bake cupcakes, at some point, you have to build a website about cupcakes, and you have to sell the cupcakes, and you need to do your invoices about cupcakes. There are so many things that go into running a small business that eventually, you're not eventually, you may hit a point where your desire to deliver a product, you know, reaches its furthest point forward because of your business skills are lacking to deliver all the things you have to do to run a small business because there's so much that has to get done. It's more than just the core product that you deliver. So people get frustrated or they bring in partners or they just end up going back to corporate because it can be an easier but less fulfilling life when you go back to corporate. Well, people also have the notion that if they just can hire a bunch of people to do what they don't do, it'll all work out. And what some of us have learned, myself included, is sometimes those are not the people to do those jobs. Sometimes sometimes you need a team, but you almost need a an expert to hire the team. You almost <laughs> you almost you know, yeah I'm not an expert. I'm not a human resources person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in my experience, 
I, I've hi I hired people from from different areas to work in those areas, and they all wanted to do my job. They all wanted to be creative, the creative director or the creative person. That's what drew them to me was a, a desire to be creative. So, you know, how do you how do you because this is true when you have one you have your one superpower or your two superpowers or maybe three, but how do we find the people who do what we don't do? Getting clear on what you don't do first and probably being clear on whether or not you feel like being a manager. Back to the cupcake person, if they want to hire people, they're now a cupcake person and a manager. And yeah. some people just don't want to be managers. And being a solopreneur might be a better fit for them long term, even though it may limit their upside unless they bring in a proper manager to manage the team. But to get back to the question, if you get clear on the things that you don't want to do, you can find people to perform those duties. But it goes back to finding someone that's actually competent at doing it and someone that will work with you in whatever work style that you have and accepting the idea that even if they're a contractor or a VA or someone you're outsourcing to, you're going to deal with turnover and you're going to deal with deadlines and you may deal with some work product quality issues until you find those right people that need to be on your team. So to find them, I always look for referrals. I try and find someone that's using a person like that. So like if you called me up, are you, I'm looking for someone that does the thing. Oh, I have someone that does the thing and they're great. You should use them. So I find that that's a shortcut because if you just go on Fiverr or one of these marketplaces and say, I need someone to do the thing and it's $99, you have no idea if they're any good. They might say they're good, but you have no idea if they're actually any good. So it can be really frustrating to find the right help to help you grow. There are things that, there are things for which you can just outsource, crowdsource, find the lowest bidder for a certain thing. The less important it is, the the more you can use, I think, resources like that. As a creative director and a copywriter, people would say, oh, you know, just put yourself, put yourself on Fiverr or put, or go on Fiverr to find this. Or go, and, and it's like, what, what we do is too specific, too creative and too relationship oriented to just palm it off on a for hire service type that's that's that there's no personal recommendations involved it's like you're like you say i would rather find somebody through somebody i know and mm -hmm. i think that's probably why networking has become so integral to small business success you say on your website on the idea collective site you don't have to be alone don't don't do it all alone so explain for the audience how your idea collective and small business incubator works i think you're hitting on at least that's the thing i talk about all the time that's missing in the small business marketplace there are places to go network there are places to go get coaching but i didn't see a group that was getting together to support one another for conversations like the one you brought up I need a VA that does the thing. Oh, I have someone. I'll help you. A group of people that decided to get together and help one another because doing what you do, doing what I do, doing what someone who's listening to this does, at the end of the day, we're out selling something to put food on our table because we're small business owners. There's right. no shareholder. There is no corporate overlord that's going to come along and pay our credit card bill. 
We eat what we right. kill, right? We got to go build this or else. So the stakes are the same and the journey is the same, regardless of your profession, if you're trying to build it by yourself. That's the founding premise of the Idea Collective, is that you don't have to grow it alone, that we can work together with an expectation of helping one another rather than an expectation of competing with one another or trying to get business from one another. And it all went back to the pandemic. The pandemic hit three days after the NBA canceled and Tom Hanks got COVID. I was on a Zoom that we called Small Business Rally Point, bringing people together. And the whole premise was, we don't know what's going on, but if we stick together and we're positive and we talk with one another, we will all get through this. So we brought people together and we held that Zoom call. We had that for 90 days. And at the end of 90 days, someone said, you've built a community here. That's how the Idea Collective was launched. And we've kept those principles throughout. It sounds simple, but it really is the linchpin of everything. I have been hearing that also quite a bit. We're in this together. And I think if the intent is that, that like you just described, that kind of sense of unified purpose, I think that is how we're going to get through all of these things. And I don't think we knew how much we relied on other people until this pandemic hit us. And we were just thrown into a sense of complete mystification and complete confusion. Nothing made any, nothing made any sense. I mean, I was walking, you know, when when we could even go outside like at first we were afraid to even go outside out, out of our house when i when i what when i first started walking my dog and you know i had finished washing my groceries and, <laughs> and spraying my groceries with non-chlorine bleach so that i that, so that they could be eaten by my children and i'm walking my dog and making these ridiculous videos just just holding my camera in front of me and doing characters and voices just to just to break the fear through humor mm -hmm. uh you know i i was realizing okay the the real the real goal is to connect with people and stay connected at least we can connect. At least I can call people. I can see people. And that slowly gave way to starting to actually create things again, business-wise. And we saw a lot of people creating new businesses, which is great. What does it take to start a business? And how long should you be doing it alone before you are ready to bring in those, those other people? Great question. And it depends. And I know that's not the right answer, but it does depend. Well, no. You know, if you're wanting to start an auto body shop, it's going to cost more to start up than a copywriting service. If you don't have any hard costs, you could start with a computer and a telephone. That's all you're right. going to need. So let's assume it's that side rather than having to go get a loan or that kind of thing. You know, as soon as you can get super clear on what you're doing and what you're doing different than everyone else, and also tacking onto that who you're doing it for so you can get really clear on the audience so now you're a copywriter for software as a service companies okay that's a very narrow audience and you have a very specific product now you can go out and try and chase business so step one would be what are you going to do step two is what are you going to do that's different than everyone else and step three who are you going to do it for so you know exactly who to talk to 
And then you just start running for office as the copywriter for software as a service companies. So you can get clear and go after it. But the second part of your question, I like because it's a lesson that I learned. When do you start bringing other people in? The book, Who Not How by Dan Sullivan, should be required reading. If you're going to start a business, if you're going to run a business, you absolutely positively must read that book. Because if you don't read Who Not How and you run your business incorrectly like I did for a long time, you'll just ask yourself the same question over and over again. An opportunity or a challenge comes and you say to yourself, how in the world am I going to do this? And when you do that, you're slowing yourself down because now you're not writing copy. You're dealing with whatever the fire is. Instead, that book teaches you very simply, who am I going to get to deal with this? And when you think like that, you think, wow, I know someone that does SEO. I'll just hire them to do it. And that will keep you on your main task. And like, it's easy to say, oh, I can't afford them or I can't bring in people In my experience, every time I brought someone in to take on a piece of my business I was not good at and a piece of the business I didn't like doing, I ended up moving faster and getting more business, which sounds scary, but at least that's been my experience so far. So I cannot recommend that book enough because the faster you add people to your team, the faster you're going to go and grow. Yeah, and we... Sometimes, I know I do, we sometimes equate hiring people to do things as a sign of laziness. Like, oh, I'm too good. I'm too good to, you know, I'm too good to to do the editing myself of the podcast. I'm too good to do the graphics. I'm too good to, you know, I'm just being lazy. I should just work harder, (laughs) right? And because we sometimes think we're, you know, on the one hand, we're not giving ourselves enough credit for the things we do well. On the other hand, we're we're uh, we're giving ourselves too much credit for being able to to multitask. Mm-hmm. That is so true, so true. Well, I can save seventy five dollars a week if I don't hire this person. Or, boy, you know, I don't want to hire someone because I'm being lazy. Another thing that I learned is that time is compensation. Like when you give a task to someone and you pay them to do it, you might get an hour or two a week off, which is another novel concept. Oh my goodness, I'm not going to work this afternoon. Like there were parts of my business where I'd take a weekend off and feel really guilty or an evening off and feel like, oh my gosh, I really shouldn't be doing this. Time is compensation. And when you have money to hire someone else to do something better than you can in the first place... It's a double win. And then that gives you even more time to go do what you're on the planet to do, which is probably the thing you can monetize. I love that you brought this up because it's something that a lot of people hold themselves back on when they don't move forward and hire people as quickly as they can. Yeah. So when we talk about, let's talk about hires and personalities a little bit. Okay. Um, How do you find people you can trust and yes through recommendations of course Mm -hmm. but sometimes that isn't a good fit you know you have a few people you trust but they aren't finding someone that's a good fit for you how do you navigate that it may not be the right fit and you may hire the wrong person how do you deal with all that stuff about hiring someone that fits and making sure you get the right person the success that i've seen and the success that i've had has been incremental growth 
finding someone to do a job that went well let's give them some more oh that's going well let's give them some more and having them grow into a bigger role inside the organization rather than going from zero to 60 of i'm going to hire someone that's doing 30 hours a week because i have a hunch that can be a big risk yeah yeah i think that that falls back to impatience and this fantasy that we have that that there are knights in shining armor that come in and save our save our ass from the things that we <laughs> don't don't want to do <laughs> yeah. right so on the one hand we can screw ourselves over by holding on to small amounts of money because it makes us gives us a false sense of security when we should be spending it on hires but then also feeling that hires are magical in some way mm-hmm. because they're they're not and if anything i think where i've missed the boat sometimes is that that we are magic we are the magic it's the details and it's the execution and the management and the operations that are less magical so it's not like we're looking for for four unicorns you know we're looking for the people who can do those things that that we don't what are you have people call into your show mm-hmm. and what do you hear most often from from business owners who call into your podcast i hear from people that are frustrated with social media they've invested a bunch of time into their social accounts and they're wondering why they don't get the engagement that they want they can't convert leads into customers it's getting people from the no like and trust stage to they're spending money with me stage and that's what a lot of the questions come into the episode that we released this week the first question was about i'm a million dollar business but i can't get my customers to leave reviews okay that's that's a a trust transference kind of problem right they like me but how do i get them to say publicly that they like me which goes back to social and digital reach and the other person that called in this week is launching a cohort for a program that she runs and she's having a hard time getting her fans to get over the hump to buy it in this current iteration. So it's a lot of that trust transference. It's a lot of that getting someone from maybe to yes. And sometimes there are, I need a name for something or I have a problem that I can't solve. But the thing that comes up most often is people kind of know who I am. How do I get them to hire me? Do you help them find names for their company when they, oh, yeah. to, to figure out uh, the names because I do that was something that I that I started doing I worked with a lot of brands that were coming over to the United States from Asia and and Europe and wanted help taking their various products and offerings and convert them into it because I I do messaging that's mm-hmm. that's my I'm like a message therapist basically <laughs> yeah. so that and that's my new offering is message therapy because I, I find that's what I've been doing my my whole career but it's not business um, operations or growth growth mm-hmm. strategies it's messaging it's communicating it once you've figured out those strategies the social media thing is so so frustrating and I don't know what to tell people either because again I'm helping them create the content maybe the 
the message and the content and the the the, the creativity and, and the strategy too but social media is one of those things that i have i have rarely talked to anyone who's super thrilled with so with the results of social media the conversions you know you could have a million followers can you even get a hundred dollars in sales from those from those million there have been yeah there have been um influencers who started their own product line and they had a million followers and they couldn't sell the requisite number of units they couldn't sell 40 units because those people weren't buying it and social stacked against us it's completely yeah. stacked against us and i think people don't want to believe that because we think it's this chance for free advertising and free engagement. And in theory it is, but just because you have a million followers doesn't mean anything that you put up is going to be seen by a million people, especially on Facebook. You're going to see a fraction of that audience. And a lot of the sites are um, encouraging you not to put up links that take people off of the platform. So if you put up a sales link or a content link that's someplace other than the native site you're posting it on, they don't want you to do that. They're not up there to help you move audience around. They're up there to help you engage people on their platform. So it's really frustrating when you've been generating content and you've been nurturing this audience as best as you can. And then when it's time to push them around, you can't. You got to spend money to make that happen. I don't think people want to believe that, but it's what everyone's kind of realizing now, that what is the value of a million followers? I'm not sure what the value is if you're not going to put money behind it to try and get through the restrictions that are put on organic reach on social, because it's a real thing. And that, I think, has a lot to do with the frustration that people feel with building up these social profiles that make you feel like you have this giant asset and you really don't. Yeah, everybody's eyes got very big when they saw the. They imagine it's 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 not even the influencers' fault. We created a a fantasy, an illusion about what that level of exposure, yeah, is is like, as though, as though the early days of of television never existed, where, you know, there were only three networks and you could be broadcasting into captive audiences in millions and millions of homes, you could put your cornflakes on television or your Charmin on television and people would see that ad and have to buy something. <laughs> and the, you, you would be competing with however much the other cereal company. So here we just saw all these eyes on people and thought those are dollars waiting to be to be spent and it's mm -hmm. it's proved not to be that so what are in your opinion the the best approaches for uh for solopreneurs to get their message into the world it's tough i believe in building stages i believe in events i believe in bringing people together whenever you can and it also depends on what success looks like. I guess we should start there. If you're a lemonade stand and you get to sell a million cups a month, you'd have a different strategy than you and me that might need five or 10 clients and feel like we're doing great. But in general, there's so much power in creating events and creating stages that you can feature people on 
to build real relationships, that co-promotion kind of aspect that comes from events and creating stages, to me, that's the thing that's worked for me and I've seen work for others because, you know, I haven't seen a lot of organic growth strategies that have proven successful other than those. So those are my favorite stages and events personally. Well, speaking of events, tell us tell us about the, the retreat and, and what that provides. Sure. So the Idea Collective is this international group of entrepreneurs that get together online and we help each other every day through classes and message boards and all that kind of stuff, brainstorming sessions. But we never got together in person. So last November, for the first time, we built a small business retreat. The idea is if you're a fat cat CEO, you can fly to Palm Springs and stare into the sun for a couple of days and think about your business deeply because that's what CEOs get to do. But we don't get to do that. Why not? Well, let's fix that. So I'm creating this retreat. Last November was the first one. It's in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is a re resort town between Chicago and Milwaukee. It used it, The hotel we do it at is called Grand Geneva Resort. It used to be the Playboy Club, by the way. Just oh, wow. Saying, yeah, it's, it's got that 70s swank thing going on. So we got people together. We had Mel Robbins as a keynote speaker. We had Jesse Cole from the Savannah Bananas as a keynote speaker. We got 100 people together. And this was November of 2021. Like the pandemic was still kind of masks and stuff, right? Right. And it went great. So we're doing it again in early November. Same place this year. Our keynotes are Precious Williams, the killer pitch master, and Mike Michalowicz, the author of Profit First. And I don't know, do you know who Jack Butcher is? Have you ever heard of Jack Butcher? That sounds really familiar. To He's me. the founder of Visualize Value. He's a, he dominates Twitter. He is my hero as far as online commerce. If you want to sell your knowledge online, Jack Butcher and Visualize Value is like the guy you got to go learn from. We just landed a keynote interview with him, and he's going to be a part of the retreat as well. So it's just a great opportunity to bring the entire community together and give a benefit to small business owners that don't normally get to get treated that way. It's, it's a really great three days. It's fascinating to me. And because I'm not that far from there, I hope to, to, to check it out because um, it really, I have been to the festivals and the conferences where the major players play and what we what we do when we go to those things, most often I think we're seeking inspiration, um, but we're we're small as small business people. We're not part of that stratosphere. We're not we're not going there to figure out what to do with fifty million dollars. <laughs> you know, we're we're really not. We're not there to figure out how to turn fifty million dollars into five hundred million dollars. That's that's not that's not what we're we're trying to figure out how to take our business to the next level and how to learn from one another. Yep. And those guys may be doing the same thing, but they're just doing it at a different level. And so while it's very exotic and, it is, and it's very aspirational to go to some of those things, tangibly speaking, it's, it's, not, it's not really fulfilling. So I think it's great to have something, even if it's 100 people, that's even better. That's about right. Yeah. You know, that's that's about right. You don't need 10,000 people or 50,000 people in an arena and then have somebody on a stage with all the lights, you know, going in 100 different directions and telling them <laughs> they're all going to be billionaires. You know, we're going to have 50,000 billionaires by the time we leave. That's not really that also. And, and this is another question for you. 
I also don't know that people's aspirations are so outrageous. You know, the celebrity culture and all that stuff and the Kardashians and all that. I think that maybe it's the pandemic. Maybe it's at this point in the pandemic cycle. Are we losing our fascination with billions of dollars and endless money and possession and all that stuff was as a society where are we at right now i think we've observed that i think we've observed a cultural shift or i don't want to use the big fancy word of awakening but realization that it is more than just money and i think that has a lot to do with the explosion of small businesses people either chose to leave work or were asked to leave work and decided you know, maybe I should go build this thing I've always wanted to build because we don't know what's going to happen in our life, in our society. We don't know what the future is going to bring. So I better go do it and do it now. So yeah, I completely agree with you. I think people are less hooked up in the mass appeal, big dollar, fancy car version of a perfect life and more aware of their personal gifts and meaning towards what they do every day. And I think work from home has a lot to do with that as well. Why should I drive an hour each way? Why should I eat out every day from the taco truck? Why should I work for 30 years to build somebody else's dream? You'll see it on my website. That's one of the quotes. Life is too short to build somebody else's dream. And that is so true. And when I left the radio station four years ago to start consulting small businesses that has now turned into this project that I love so much, helping other people fulfill their dreams, I would never go back. There's no way you could get me back into a radio station. No way. No chance. I love what I'm doing because it means so much to me. So I think you're spot on there. Well, there's two two things left that I wanted to find out from you. I did want to hear a little bit about your adventures in broadcasting. Sure. Just a couple of highlights if you would share, because I'm just a big fan of, of broadcasting. And then the other thing was, I also wanted to mention that the working at home thing, as amazing and convenient as that is, I realized that sometimes it's not great because my daughter changed my lighting, changed my <laughs> lighting up in the studio, and I have like a kind of a blue cast over my face, which I don't ordinarily have. But but that's that's okay. The stakes aren't <laughs> supremely high in terms of my blue versus white lighting but it's <laughs> you know but it's but it's still a function of of working at home and having to preserve your precious space you know your workspace and your mm -hmm. sanity and uh, we talk about that a lot about you know it's great to be home and it's great to be near your family at the same time it does take us we do have to shift in and out of work mm -hmm. so that that so we'll we'll close with a couple of stories about about broadcasting but tell me about when we talk about uh entrepreneurship what is the best and i may be putting you on the spot i hope not what is the best small business idea that you that you've heard in recent memory oh my goodness the best small business idea that I've heard. That's a really, really good question. I mean, I'm around a lot of great operators. Many of them are selling their knowledge. So good for them. I have a friend, Andy Wines, uh, 
he does something really cool, and he was built for this. I don't think someone could just come up with this idea and do it. But for decades, he was with his father uh, doing junk removal and upcycling, recycling and upcycling. So him and his father would drive around and, you know, clean out places or take away junk. And it's not a junk hauling business. It's actually a recycling and uh, materials business. So now he's grown to the point where he has this company called Camo Crew. And he goes to people's basements and cleans them out and charges them for it. Takes the stuff back to the warehouse. And anything that can't be resold is ripped apart for its parts. And then the parts are sold because some of the materials are worth a ton of money right now. Anything right. that can be recycled can be recycled and anything that can be sold can be sold. So he's like triple dipping on all this stuff and he doesn't have any hard good costs because people beg him to come take the stuff out of their houses, which plays on this great motivation of, I have a basement, but I can't take the couch up the steps, right? It, it's brilliant with what he does because he makes a ton of money on it. There are no hard good costs and he's a terrific operator. So I think that's one of my favorite businesses that I've seen lately because it just seems to work on all the levels. And he's, you know, seeing outrageous success. And simplistic and straightforward and based on a problem. Yeah. It all starts with a problem. What's the problem? People need that stuff hauled out. And then everything goes from there. And then it's... It, it's funny because that is a great example. You didn't let me down. That is a it is a great example, Pat, because because it's because it's it's so perfectly suited to him. It plays on what he's great at, and it's the funnels, so to speak, that exist within there are all sensible and profitable, and low overhead. And there you go. So. Yeah. You know, but it started with something that made perfect sense and was a, uh, you know, natural for him. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really talk about your broadcasting backgrounds. Give us a, a little, a little insight into what that part of your career was about and then, uh, and then a highlight from that time. Okay. Well, I went to school for it and in the middle of Illinois, Illinois State University, great broadcasting program. Yeah. And I started building radio stations. That's what I liked. A lot of people go into broadcasting because they like to be on the air. Hey, like they like being the guy, right? And I enjoyed being the guy. Hosting a show is fun. But the thing that I really liked was identifying the audience, analyzing the competition, figuring out how you could build a better mousetrap, right? Build the brand, build the messaging, schedule the music, select the music, schedule the promotions, that's the stuff that I liked about it. The strategy and the construction of the product was the stuff that had my heart. So I had the chance to move around the Midwest, uh, went to Des Moines, Iowa, went to Des Moines, yeah. Lincoln, Nebraska, loved Lincoln, Nebraska, great town, Omaha, and then back here in Milwaukee and all around the Midwest doing that. And each time that we moved, I moved more and more into product creation and management and talent management and that sort of thing. To the point where at the end of my career, I was director of marketing and innovation for two big stations in Milwaukee, and I wasn't even on the air at the end of my career. All along the way, I was on the air hosting shows and, you know, standing at the state fair with corn dogs and car dealerships and all the stuff that you see radio guys do. 
but it was a really good business and I really enjoyed it. But it just got to the point where I wanted to go do something else that was more meaningful to me. And then you asked about a story. My favorite interview was Weird Al Yankovic came into the studio. And regardless of what you think about Weird Al, you probably would imagine that that's crazy and fun. And he was exactly crazy and fun, but that wasn't the fun part. On the air, he was crazy and fun. But the thing that I found fascinating is we get off the air, my show is over. Uh, Wow, that was really great. Thanks for coming in, all that stuff. He's like, hey, can I go over there and make some phone calls? Sure, Weird Al, you can do whatever you want, right? So he goes into the office, puts on some reading glasses, and there he goes. He starts making phone calls. It was so weird to see this guy that you see as this legendary performer just be a dude and just do his thing. So uh, it was was pretty cool. There were rock stars, and there was that kind of thing. But the Weird Al story, to me, just helps me see behind the curtain a little bit that whatever level you do what we're doing – there's still the thing that has to get done to make it all happen. And he was so sweet and just such a professional. Uh, it, it was a cool story. It meant a lot to me. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. <laughs>